0: Have you uh, ever had somebody tell you something that you've found hard to believe? I'm sure that as I ask you that question, you probably have examples of of that happening, dropping into your mind. Maybe somebody said to you something that just sounded too good to be true, or maybe somebody said something just sounded impossible. You're like, I I don't believe that. I, I can't believe that. There actually is a funny story that isn't the focus of our time to get today, but a story that I want to bring to your attention very briefly, that highlights the fact that sometimes people speak things and we don't believe what they're saying. And it's a story that's found in the book of Acts. I'm not going to turn there, but I will tell you about it. It's in Acts 12, where Peter, most of you know who Peter is, this apostle, this leader in the early church, is arrested by the authorities. They're sick of him talking about this Jesus. And from what we understand, this isn't funny. From what we understand, they're planning to bring him to trial and to kill him. And so all the Christians get together because they know that this is about to happen. It's the night before the trial. They get together and they start to just pray into the night that God would do a miracle. And as they're praying, Peter is asleep between guards in this prison cell. And all of a sudden, he's awoken by an angel. I and mean, the story is quite incredible. You can read it in Acts 12. And he's awoken by this, anim- this angel, not an animal, an angel. And, and this angel comes and, and releases him from his bonds, takes him out through all of these gates, and finally, Peter awakes to realize this wasn't a dream. This is actually happening. And he's standing there. The angel disappears. He's standing there on the street alone, free. And so he he makes a beeline for where he thinks the disciples, the followers of Jesus, will be. And some of you know the story. He runs up to the place. The gate is locked. He knocks on the gate because they're all busy inside praying for a miracle. And so the young servant girl, Rhoda, comes out to the gate, and she hears Peter's voice. And she freaks out in this moment. She doesn't let him in. She runs back into where everybody's praying. She says, Peter, Peter's at the gate. And they say, no, no, surely not. This is their actual response. They say, you are out of your mind. And then uh, she keeps telling them. And then the next thing they say, well, maybe it's his angel. And so they're they're throwing out all of these things. and, And the irony of this story, I'm sure, isn't lost on you, that the people who are praying for a miracle, when a miracle happens, don't believe the word of the person telling them. And it's this funny story because they doubt this, the words of this servant girl. They couldn't believe what she said was true. And as funny as that story is, by the way, they eventually go out and get Peter and bring him in, and they're all very excited. But as funny as that story is, it actually points to a, a serious problem. And that problem is that we sometimes struggle to believe both the words and the works of Jesus. And so we're going to look at this struggle today by examining a moment, a little space of time in Jesus' life where Jesus spoke something. He simply spoke and a miracle happened. And so you'll find this moment in John chapter 4, which we read earlier, but I'm going to invite you to turn there. If you have access to a Bible, uh, turn with me to John chapter 4. We'll spend some time here. And as you're turning there to John chapter 4, I'm actually going to give you just a little bit of context, because I think this is helpful for us to understand. We left last week in John 2, the second part of John 2, where Jesus cleansed the temple in Jerusalem. And what happens after that, if we were to read it, which it's worth a read, John 3 happens after that, and that's where there's this famous conversation between Jesus and this very important Jew, a, a religious leader, one of the, the Pharisees, an important person in Jerusalem, a teacher of, of the religious law. His name is Nicodemus, and some of you, most of you will probably know a, a part of their conversation. John three sixteen: for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. That was a part of a conversation between Jesus and this guy, Nicodemus. Now, if you fast forward onto John chapter four, there's another dialogue, but it's a very different dialogue. You go from this religious leader, this important guy, to this down and out Samaritan woman, and Jesus has this conversation with her. And what's interesting is he has this chat with her, and she believes she gets, just through this conversation and some of the things Jesus says, she comes to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. And she takes him into this Samaritan village. By the way, Samaritans and Jews were not meant to hang out with each other. She takes him into the village, and the whole village believes, of all these Samaritans. And so that's the background for where we pick up the text in verse 46, because that's where we'll be reading from. So look at verse 46 with me, if you would. John 4, 46, it says this. So he, we're talking about Jesus, came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Now, just take a pause there for a moment. Let's let's talk about a few things here. When it says official, it's introducing to us a, a major character, at least for this story. But it doesn't give us a lot of detail. What we can deduct from this is that this guy was probably a Gentile. What that means is that he wasn't a Jew. He was an outsider, a foreigner, which, by the way, again, Jews didn't really like Gentiles. And so he would have been seen as uh, inferior, as a foreigner. Also, it's important to note that it says he was an official, which means he was probably working with the Roman government. Rome exercised control. I mean, a a tight-gripped control over the land at that time. So not only was this guy a foreigner, he was helping the enemy. So it's good to know that, looking at this guy's life, just to understand a little bit of that context. There's a couple of other things that are worth clarifying, which for me personally even were points of confusion, and I want to just make sure we're on the same page here. The first is, this is not the same story that we find in Matthew chapter 8 or Luke 7 of the centurion and the servant who gets healed. As a, those are very similar stories, but it's not the same story, okay? So that's the first point worth clarifying. The second point worth clarifying... Is what it says in verse 54 here. If you jump down there with me, it says this was now the second sign that Jesus did when he came from Judea to Galilee. We read that and we're like, wait a second, is this the second sign? Where does this fall in the order of the signs? That can cause us some confusion. What we need to remember is that John's made clear Jesus does lots of signs. He's only recorded a few, and this is the second one that's happened in Galilee. This is the first one was the water into wine. Second one here. The third thing worth clarifying are the two locations in the story. This was a bit, bit of a point of confusion for me, so I went digging into it. So you've got Cana, and you've got Capernaum. And I've got my hands like this because they were actually at different elevations. It was about a day's journey from Capernaum up to Cana, or you know, a day's journey back down. And so you'll hear that, coming, that language coming out in the story as we read it together. What we see here is a man who is desperate. His son is about to die. He's pretty convinced of that. And so any of you who are parents would know, in a moment like that, you would be looking at any option. And so he's probably heard stories about this Jesus guy who does miracles. And he's like, maybe that is my one ticket out of the path I don't want to go down where my son dies. And so he goes looking. He goes on this day's journey looking for Jesus, and his intent is to find Jesus, to bring Jesus back, and to maybe, maybe get a miracle. And so we see that that his intent coming out in verse forty-seven. Actually, if you read that, it says, "When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and to heal his son, for he was at the point of death." So we know what he's thinking, and where this is made really clear to us. If you jump forward to verse 49, the official said to him, so this is him speaking now, sir, come down before my child dies. So we know very clearly what this man wants. What isn't so clear, what's maybe a little bit confusing is Jesus' response in verse 48. I don't know if you noticed that in the kid's story. Jesus' response is maybe a little bit cryptic. If you look at verse 48, it says this, so Jesus said Jesus said to him unless you see signs and wonders you will not believe. It seems like a bit of a strange response to this request of Jesus to come and to come with this man to go and perform a miracle for his son. One thing that helps us kind of understand if we dig into this okay what's this verse 48 about question one thing that helps us a little bit is you may note depending on your translation that that word you has a little asterisk next to it, at least it does in my, my translation, and that's to tell us that this word you is not singular, it's a plural. Jesus actually isn't speaking directly to the official in his reply. He's speaking to the crowd around him, but he's also speaking to mankind in general. He's speaking to mankind's doubt and lack of belief, He's speaking to the fact that there is a fundamental distrust and unbelief in the heart of man when it comes to God. We've got to believe that Jesus is frustrated by that, that the unbelief that rests in a human heart is something that he's not okay with, and that this is a problem that goes way back. In fact, if we were to turn all the way back to the very first pages of our Bible, we would see this problem beginning. If you go to the Garden of Eden, there you've got Adam and Eve, And God speaks to them in the garden where all is good. And what do the humans do? They doubt God and they act on their doubt. And in that moment, as they doubted God and and acted on that, all that was good in God's creation distorted. Sin entered the world. And ever since, we've seen the ripple effects of that. I mean, any sickness, any pain and death and disease, war, all the bad things that we see in this world, Rippled down from that moment of disobeying the word of God, unbelief in the word of God. And so, what happens next is interesting because in verse 50, Jesus then begins to hone in on this official specifically. If verse 48 was Jesus kind of speaking to the crowd and all mankind, verse 58 is definitely for the official. Jesus said to him, Go, your son will live. What Jesus is doing here is he's pressing in on this unbelief that happens in the human heart. He's saying to him, Hey, will you believe my word? Because the official is faced with a decision in this moment, right? Is what Jesus is saying to him true? Because if it is, he's going to have to abandon his plan and trust, believe what Jesus has said. And that's a big change. I mean, I'm sure there was a wrestling match inside of him in this moment to say, well, wait, my plan was to bring you with me to see if you could do this miracle, but now you're telling me to just Go. We don't have to wonder too long how he responds because if you read on to the very next sentence, it tells us the response. John, the author of this book of the Bible, who would have been here standing watching all of this happen, he was one of Jesus' close friends. He wants us to know what's decided. And so if you read on in verse 50, it tells us exactly what happens. It says, The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. He chooses belief. And the remaining part of this story is written to help us to choose belief. If you read on with me, in verse 51, it says this. As he was going down, remember, a day-long journey. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, that's about 1 p.m. our time, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. He believed. His household believed. That's, That's great news. That's good. That's something that we can and should celebrate. But we must also remember that these signs are written here for our belief. John 20, which we talked about a couple of weeks ago, verse 31, says this, But these, these signs, are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you may have life in His name. If we kind of step back for a moment and look at this and think about the context which we talked about earlier, of which this story falls, things seem a little bit backwards to us. Remember I talked about John chapter 3 and Nicodemus? Well, Nicodemus is this guy who should have been excited that Jesus was there. He should have jumped on the belief bandwagon very quickly. He would have known all the Old Testament prophecies that talked about a Messiah that Jesus was fulfilling. And yet he comes to Jesus and he's wrestling, he's questioning, he's not sure what to make of Jesus. Now, we do have reason to believe If you read on to John 7 and John 19, Nicodemus pops up again, and we do have reason to believe that in those moments that that it looks like he has believed, Nicodemus has believed, but it was not easy for him. And what seems backwards is the people who are on the fringes of society and fringes of culture seem much more eager and ready to jump in and to believe. The Samaritan woman... The Samaritan village, this Gentile official who's working with the enemy, the Romans, all of them are believing the good news. And what we've got to understand is that God is wanting us to understand as we look at his word that the good news of God's kingdom is for everyone. We can't help but see that as we read this story in its greater greater context. Now, just to be emphatically clear, when we say good news, what are we talking about? We're talking about the good news that Jesus is God and that he came into the world to repair all that had been broken since the garden like we talked about. But if we're honest, and this is the part, friends, please hear this. If we're honest, I think many of us would admit that even though we may know this good news, or at least know about it, I'm not going to assume that all of us in this room would say, yes, I'm, I'm right there on the spectrum of belief. I believe this good news. Maybe some of you are exploring. But all of us would admit that there are areas in which we struggle with belief. Where we struggle to believe, yes, God has said this, and I can believe that I believe that I believe that. Why is that? What stops us from believing Jesus and all the things that he has spoken Well, it may be helpful for us to think about what are some of the things that he has spoken. Let me just give you a quick sampling of some of the things that Jesus has said that we need to believe but maybe struggle with a little bit. One of the things that he said is that I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to God except through me. He is the one way to God, to be right with God, to be reconciled with God. Another thing that he said is that he came to give life, to give it abundant, to give it in fullness. A third thing that he said is that he is always with you, even, he, always with us, even to the end of the age. He, as in he'll never leave us, never forsake us. But we hear these things, many of us, and, and again, I'm speaking to all of us, no matter where we are on the spectrum of faith, and we can doubt. We can doubt that God has the power to save us. I know that in a room like this, there's some that have struggled in the past or maybe even struggling now, to believe that God has the power to save them. They look at maybe a list of things or maybe one particular thing in their life that they've done and they're like, how could God forgive me of that? How could I be right with him? Or we doubt his goodness. We, we hold up in our lives all the, the ways that we feel and we're like, I know that he said that he came to give life abundantly, but I don't feel like I've got a good or an abundant life in this moment. Others of us maybe struggle with doubting his presence. We could say, yeah, I know that scripture in Matthew 28 where Jesus says, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age, but the fact is, I feel alone. I feel like my, my prayers get to about the ceiling and then drop back down to the ground. The problem is that these doubts aren't just contained in and of themselves. These doubts actually have consequences. When we doubt the Word of God, when we doubt Jesus, we rob Him of His glory and we rob ourselves of assurance. Back in the 1600s, there was a group of people who came together, who loved Jesus, and they came together to really kind of figure out what faith was and what life was about. And uh, What's interesting is the very first question that they asked, they wrote a bunch of questions and answers to those questions. The very first question they asked was, what is the purpose of mankind? Why do we exist is basically what they were saying. What, what, what is our purpose? They were speaking in older English, so they said, what is the chief end of man? And their answer to that was this, man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy him forever. So our purpose is to glorify God. What they're saying, and I agree with this, is that a human's primary purpose is that, that that's our first and foremost reason for existence, to exalt, to magnify, to make big, to point to God. But the problem is, that is a good question and a good answer, but the problem is when we doubt, we actually do the opposite of that. We shrink God. When we question and say, I don't know if God could save me. I I don't know if he really is with me. I don't know if this life is that good. When we do that, we shrink, we diminish his glory. And so we can put that over onto any example of area of doubt. When we doubt, we diminish the glory of God. And that is not good. So what's the remedy for our doubts? What dispels doubts? What drives doubts away? A a couple of quick thoughts on this. Our doubts are dispelled by a proper view of Jesus. We must see Jesus as more than just some inspired man walking around doing miracles. We talked about this a few weeks ago. And John, the author of this book, clearly wants us to know that. In fact, if you turn back with me to uh, the very first verse of the book of John. I invite you to do that. To John chapter 1, verse 1. Listen to the language that is used here. This will give you a much bigger view of Jesus than just a man walking by the Sea of Galilee. It says this, In the beginning was the Word, capitalized, personified, and the Word was with God and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So who is this Word? It's Jesus, right? Read on to verse 14. And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. As in John's writing this, I have seen his glory is basically what he's saying. You know, I, I, I got to witness all of these things. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. This passage is zooming us back out to see that Jesus was not just present at creation, but at work in creation. He was the word creating all matter, all existence. But in fact, the Bible goes further than just saying that the Bible also tells us that he doesn't just create the universe, he sustains the universe. I'm not going to turn there, but if you were to flip over to Hebrews, another book in the Bible, chapter 1, verse 3, it says this. It says that Jesus upholds the universe by the word of his power. So I want to ask you to think about something. If his word... If Jesus' Word was powerful enough to create all existence, and if Jesus, by the Word of His power, is able to sustain the whole universe as we see it and hold it all together, can we trust His Word spoken to us? The answer from us should be an emphatic yes. Our doubts can be driven away by a proper view of Jesus. Secondly, our doubts can also be dispelled by knowing what Jesus has done, knowing his track record. You see, Jesus didn't just tell this official that his son was going to be healed. He actually healed him. He didn't just say, hey, yeah, it'll be fine. I'll get to that later on or, you know, come back and see me. No, he actually healed him. Jesus didn't just say in John three sixteen, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. He didn't just rattle that off. He acted on that. He went to that cross to make that possible. And in on that cross in that perfect and horrible act, he made a way for you and I to have eternal life. What I'm trying to enforce in our minds here is that Jesus word can be believed because he doesn't just talk the talk, he walks the walk. His track record is 100% proven. Everything, and I mean everything, he speaks, comes true. We've been talking about how our doubts diminish God's glory. But that's not all that happens when we doubt. There is a second consequence and one that perhaps we actually feel more because it's closer to us. And that consequence is this, the consequence of lost assurance. When we doubt God and doubt his word, we rob ourselves of assurance. Assurance is confidence in something. And in this instance, when we have assurance in God, it's confidence in something greater than ourselves. It is a a promise that we hold on to that gives us peace. And when we doubt, That confidence is vaporized. Uh, We all live here in the 21st century, and what that means is that I imagine all of you have had the experience of buying something online. And in that moment, we experience getting an assurance, right? You, think about it for a moment, you give money to somebody that you've never seen and, and never met. You send them money online, and what you get back is typically, hopefully, an assurance. You get some sort of receipt that says, thank you for your order. Here's your tracking number. All of that is an assurance. It's a reminder. It's something that you can cling to and say, okay, that's happening, and I, can, I know that that's real. We can find assurance in the words of Jesus. One of my favorite hymns, talks about Jesus, talks about his word, and the assurance that we have in trusting his word. I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. It's a song called Tis So Sweet. Have some of you guys heard this song before? Tis so sweet to trust in Jesus. That's, that's how it starts out. Let me read for you a couple of lines of this song because it's exactly what we're talking about here today. It says, tis, again, old English, it is so sweet to trust in Jesus. Listen to this next line, just to take him at his word. That's followed by just to rest upon his promise. And then the last word, line in that verse just to know, thus saith the Lord. As in, we can cling to and know this is what God has said, this is what he has said to me through Jesus. We can have assurance in Jesus and in his words. And if we pull all of these thoughts that we've had here this morning together, there are a few things that are probably worth our consideration now in this moment that I just want to bring to your attention. The first is this what has Jesus said? We've talked a lot about what Jesus has said. But as we take some time here in these next few moments, as we sing a few songs soon, I want to ask you, what has Jesus said? Secondly, I want to ask you, do you believe what he has said? And thirdly, and maybe most importantly, because I know many of you are Christians in this room, is to ask the question of where are areas of doubt? Where are shadows of doubt in our hearts and in our lives? There are places in our hearts and in our lives where we struggle There may be a situation where something's happened and you're like, I know God says He works all things together for good, but when I look at this thing in my life, I struggle. That's a real thing. Bring that to Him today. My hope is that in these next few moments, we would really get to engage with the Holy Spirit and with God and to work through, to to take our doubts to Him. And when we bring our doubts to him, the best advice that I can give to you is to go digging in his word. All of this, this beautiful book is his word written to us, and it's full of promises that we need to not just read, but to believe. And so may you and I go digging in these areas of doubt and apply his words as ointment to our anxious souls so that we can sing a words to a a hymn like that one I just quoted, and really genuinely find rest in his promises so that we would truly know like the man in John chapter 4 that we've read about, this official, the sweetness that comes from trusting in Jesus. It says there in John chapter 4, verse 50, that he believed and he went. May that be true of us too. May we believe as we engage into our lives, into our week this week. I'm going to pray for us and then Matthew's going to lead us in just a time of of thinking through some of these things and responding. So let's pray together. God, we're really thankful in this moment that you are not a God who just made the universe and then walked away. We thank you that you're not (coughs) distant or detached, but that you are engaged in our lives, that you know our highs and our lows, you know our doubts, you know our unbelief, you know all of us, and God, today we want to come to you. And just ask you to do work on our hearts. God, help us to trust you and to trust you more. May we believe upon your promises, all of them, God. May there be great faith in this room. And God, even now as we consider our own lives and whether we really do believe you in all areas, in all aspects of our lives, may your Holy Spirit be at work, illuminate, illuminating areas of unbelief in our hearts and in our lives. May we bring those quickly to you and may your word bring assurance. May you be glorified in our hearts and in our lives and in these next few moments, God. Thank you. Amen.